Good morning, Valley Bible Church. It is so good to see you. Thank you for joining us on this Easter Sunday service. If you're a guest with us for the first time and you're joining us, thank you for honoring us with with viewing this service. We are excited to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, to celebrate Easter. Now, now here's what I want to do. I want you to entertain a question for me. And I know it may sound a little odd, but just entertain it for a moment. I want to ask you this question. What do you think of your siblings? Now, maybe they're, they're with you. You can look at them. I know my kids are watching right now. So Alexine, Paxton, Dexter, and Maddox, you can all look at each other. And I, I want you to, to think, and I don't say it out loud because that might get you in trouble, but what do you think of your siblings? Think, think of some moments, some, some good moments, some, some great moments where they really shined. They just impressed you and they showed great provision over your life. They, they, they stood up for you or whatever it was. I know I can think of some, some really great moments of my sister, my sister Chris. I think she is a great sister. I, I can recall moments when I, I was a kid and, and Chris was older than me and, and there were times where she would protect me, times where she took care of me, I remember times where she was the one who was making the meals and making sure that I had what I needed. She took care of me. Now, I think many of us come, come up with many good memories, even great memories, and that's what we would call our siblings. We'd call them good, and we, we would call them great. But I want to stretch that a little bit. Could you ever find yourself saying, beyond good, beyond even great, saying that your sibling was God? Now, that's a stretch. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, my sibling kind of acts like they're God. That's not what I'm talking about. What would it take for you to say that your sibling was God? It would take a radical, just, just revolutionary type event to convince you that your brother or your sister were God. This is a very appropriate question to ask ourselves on Easter. Because Jesus had brothers and sisters. And I want to focus this Easter on one of his siblings, on James. You see, James is a remarkable character. James, like any of us would have been, to the claims of our brother or sister being God, James was very skeptical, very skeptical of Jesus' claims of being God. But then something happened that that moved him from a doubter to a believer. But beyond that, to a leader in the first century church, and even beyond that, to one of the martyrs of the first century church. How do you explain that movement? What could convince James, Jesus' brother, of his claims, so much so he not only became a believer, a leader, but a martyr? Imagine what would it take to convince you that your brother or sister was God with such certainty that you'd be willing to die for it. I want to journey through the life of James here this Sunday. From the moment of doubt, to the moment of belief, to the moment of being a leader, all the way to the moment of being a martyr. And I want us to see this journey, and here's what I think you're going to find. If you can place yourself in James's shoes, what I think you'll find is this. You're going to see great evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but also see the great significance that the resurrection has in our lives. So let's start our journey. Let's start first with James being the doubter. Now, as we go on in this journey, here's what you're going to see. You're going to see this kind of overwhelming big idea. And this is the big idea for this morning for Easter. 
So if you have something that you can write down with or maybe take a note on your phone, if you're only going to write down one sentence, I want you to write this down. The big idea for this morning is this. Doubters become believers when the dead become alive. Doubters become believers when the dead become alive. This is going to explain the movement of James from doubter to believer to leader to martyr. This is going to explain that journey, that transformation, because James had a radical event, the resurrection of his brother, and that's what moved him on that kind of timeline. That was what moved him on that journey of transformation. So let's start with James the doubter. I want you to go to John chapter 7. We're going to jump in here, and here's what we're going to see. We're going to see James' moment of doubt. Read with me. We're in James, or sorry, John chapter 7, starting with verse 1. Verse 1 says this, After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about into Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Right here we get a setting here. What's happening is Jesus is being very cautious about his travel arrangements. You see, because the, the more and more Jesus is teaching and the more and more he's doing miracles, he's, he's realizing that the religious leaders are not accepting his teaching. And in not accepting his teaching, they're becoming antagonistic to his teaching. And so now Jesus has to be very careful If he's to rush into certain places, he could find himself in trouble, which is not what he wants at this current moment. So Jesus has to be cautious about his movement, about his travel. Well, the next verse tells us one of those travel moments, a moment where Jesus could take an opportunity to really gain some fame. Look at the next verse, verse 2. Now, the the Jews' feast of booths, was at hand. The Feast of Booths. What is this? It's the Feast of Tabernacles. This was a huge event, a huge party in the city of Jerusalem. Thousands of Jews would flock to the city center of Jerusalem at this time. This feast would last seven days. Uh, one Jewish historian said of, of, the, of, the, of the popular festivals, this was the one that people loved to go to the most. So the city was just full of people. Well, this presents an opportunity for Jesus. If Jesus is kind of this religious teacher coming on the scene, trying to gain some followers, he's he's saying that he is Messiah, that he is God's promised hero from the Old Testament. God's Messiah. If he's doing that, what a great opportunity. Well, Jesus' brothers see this. His brother, including James, being James and his other brothers. They see this opportunity and they almost act as Jesus' uh, a PR campaign or public relations department. They say, Jesus, let's seize this moment. Let's do something about this. Look at the next verse. Verse 3. So his brothers, which would include James, our character. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. This makes total sense from what we know of the festival. These brothers seem like they're giving good advice. James seems like he's giving good advice. They're saying, Jesus, seize the moment. Jesus, this is an opportunity. Look at all of these people coming into Jerusalem for this religious festival. Jesus, if you want to make your mark, here's your moment. 
Now, it makes sense, too, in the backdrop of chapter 6. In chapter 6, the end of chapter 6, right before our passage this morning, Jesus is starting to lose followers. It says in chapter 6 that some people said that Jesus' teachings were just hard sayings. And some of them left Jesus. So right now, Jesus is not trending like he used to. And his brothers see this and they say, Jesus, you must seize this moment. Jesus, do miracles. Jesus, why are you staying around in Galilee doing works out here? That's great, but that's almost like in secret. You got to go to Jerusalem. If you want to have religious impact, you got to go to Jerusalem. And going to Jerusalem now, if they saw a miracle, Jesus, they would immediately follow you. The news would spread. You'd be on everybody's Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, and Snapchat. Everybody would be talking about you, Jesus. Seize the day. Now, this sounds like good advice. But the next verse shows us that Jesus sees beyond this. Jesus sees that his brothers are mocking him, if you will, or not fully believing in him. Look at the next verse. They give this advice, but it says in verse 5, For not even his brothers believed in him. So I think his brothers thought he was special, that he was significant, that he could do miracles. If they didn't believe that, then really their whole statement wouldn't make sense. But I think they're more like the disciples in chapter 6 who saw some miraculous signs and wanted to follow Jesus. But all this teaching that Jesus gave about being the son of God, about his identity being equal with God, like he said in John chapter 5, they just weren't ready for that. They were doubters. Jesus, you're significant, but the son of God? I don't know. I don't think so. This is where James starts. He starts as a doubter. Now, we can't really blame James. And I don't really blame James. You see, because nobody really thought that when Messiah would come, when this Old Testament hero would come in, this promised hero, this promised king, this promised teacher, all these hopes and dreams were wrapped around Messiah. For hundreds of years, people were waiting. The Jews were waiting for this, this hero figure to come. And they had high hopes for Messiah, but nobody expected him to be God. Nobody expected him to suffer and die on a cross. And nobody expected him to die and rise again. These were all foreign things. But think about the teaching of Jesus. At the center of his teaching is his claim to be God. At the center of his teaching is his, his act and, and, and his plan to be crucified and to rise again. At the center of Jesus' teaching was something that nobody anticipated. It is fair to say that Jesus blindsided the Jewish community with his claims and his plan. His plan of crucifixion and resurrection. Nobody saw Easter coming. Let me just show you this as a description, just to to show you. Let's just take that idea of Jesus' resurrection. I want you to go in the Old Testament to Daniel chapter 12. I want to show you that in the Old Testament, the, the, the hope of resurrection wasn't something that was reserved for Messiah. It wasn't something that they thought would happen in the middle of history. In fact, the resurrection was not only not for Messiah, it was not for the middle of history, it was for the end of days. 
Let me show you this in Daniel chapter 12, and we'll understand where James is coming from, why he starts in the place of doubt. Daniel chapter 12 says this, verse 1, And at this time shall arise Michael, this is the great angel, the great prince who, is, who has charge over your people. There shall be a time of trouble such as never been since there was a nation till that time. What's this description of? This is the end of days. This is the ultimate conflict. This is a time of great trial and tragedy and later deliverance. He's talking about the end of days here. This is the clearest passage about the resurrection that happens at the end of days. Look at what it continues to say. And there shall be a time of trial such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Here's resurrection. These bodies in the dust of the ground shall awake. And what will happen to them? Not only will their bodies come back, and and not only will soul and body be reunited, you'll be transformed, look at the next sentence, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. What's the idea there? The idea is there's going to be a transformation. The body is going to come out of the ground, but be transformed, and then these transformed beings will be eternal. They will be everlasting, some to everlasting life, and others to everlasting contempt. What is he describing here? He's describing the resurrection, but when does that happen? What happens at the end? It doesn't happen in the middle of history. It doesn't happen to the Messiah. The Jews had a hope that resurrection would happen, but it happens at the end of the story, not in the middle of the story. We can see this when Jesus' friend Lazarus dies. Jesus goes to the funeral. If you know the rest of the story, Jesus will raise Lazarus from the grave, but he goes and comforts the sister of Lazarus, Martha. And he goes up to Martha and he says, Martha, your brother will rise again. Look at what Martha says. She gives us a clue to what other Jews were thinking at the time. In John chapter 11, verse 24, Martha says this, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. See, here it is. Resurrection is not for the middle. It's not for the Messiah. It's for the end. Nobody saw Easter coming. James didn't see it. Martha didn't see it. The Jews of the first century didn't see it. Jesus would bring in a teaching that was not anticipated and not expected. But something happened. Something happened overnight. Overnight, James changed his entire worldview. Overnight, thousands of Jews would change their entire worldview. For not believing Messiah would be God, not believing Messiah would suffer and die, not believing that Messiah would die and rise again. But all of a sudden, overnight, they believed it in a moment. Let me show you this. James moves from doubter to believer. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus Christ rises again from the grave. He's around his other uh, followers and some other people. And then his time on earth ends. It's called the ascension. He comes and goes back to the Father. There's a group of people that see this ascension moment, this, this great moment. 
And then this group of people go back and they have a prayer meeting. This is kind of the birth of the first century church. And look at who's there. This is Acts chapter 1, verse 14. It said, and all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. This is the first prayer meeting, if you will, of the first century church after Christ leaves. What a dynamic moment. Together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers, which would include James. Those in John 7 who said, in mockery, we don't believe you're the son of God, are now those that are right there praying with the first century church. James moves from doubter to believer. But even beyond that, he moves from doubter to believer to leader. We see this in Paul's writing. He writes to the church at Galatia. And in chapter 1, he says this. Listen to these very careful words from the pen of Paul. Speaking of James. Paul speaks of a visit to Jerusalem. And this is what he said. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem. To visit Cephas, this is Peter, one of the closest disciples of Jesus Christ, and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Very interesting statement right there at the end. He drops the name James and he identifies him very clearly. This is James, Jesus' brother. But he's not just dropping a name. He gives James a very interesting title. He says, I met no other apostle except what? The apostle James. What does that mean? That means James has not just moved from doubter to believer, but now he's moved from doubter to leader. Leader in the first century church. We see this actually play out in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 15, there's this great debate going on. All these non-Jewish people are starting to follow Jesus. And so these Jewish followers of Jesus are having this kind of conflict. And, and, and they're saying, all you non-Jewish people, you, you have to take on our religious rights. You, you have to be circumcised. And so there's this great debate. It's the kind of first debate of the first century church. And the debate is settled in Acts chapter 15. And it's determined that non-Jewish followers of Christ will not have to take on that religious right. And you know who the influential character is in settling that debate? It's James, the brother of Jesus. After Peter, the great disciple, leaves Jerusalem in Acts chapter 12, James arises as kind of the primary leader of the Jerusalem church. Think about that. The center place of religious activity has as its leader... James, the brother of Jesus. What a movement from doubter to believer to leader. But beyond that, history tells us we have many, several ancient sources that tell us that James would lose his life. Not by natural causes, but he would be killed for his faith. Killed for his belief in his brother's resurrection. And this would happen at A.D. 62. 32 years after his brother was crucified, James lost his life because he believed in his brother's resurrection. How do you explain that? 
As you think of your own sibling, and you try to make this, this kind of situation personal, how do you explain believing that your sibling is God and believing it with such deep certainty that you're willing to die for it? What would do that? What kind of event would make that happen? You see, but this is a problem not just in explaining the life of James. This is a problem in in explaining the rise of the first century church. The Jewish mind was not anticipating the claims of Jesus. The central claims of Christianity, the central claims of Jesus' message did not fit in the Jewish mindset. That God would be with us as Messiah. That Messiah, who is God, would die and rise again. No. Rise again. No. Resurrection is for the end, not the middle of history and not for our Messiah. And yet, overnight, they believed it. And they believed it with such courage, such passion, that they would suffer persecution for it and they would die for it. How do we explain that? Again, go back to that big idea. What is it? Doubters become believers when the dead become alive. James saw something. He saw something that reshaped his worldview, that changed his perspective, that blew up his boxes of understanding threw away his religious expectations, changed his total trajectory in life, made him willing to suffer and die for this new reality. He saw the risen Jesus Christ. He saw his brother beat death. Let me show you this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. What I want to show you in this passage is to show you that statement I keep saying that worldview changed overnight. You know, we can often think that, well, maybe just the first century church believed in a very tame Jesus, just a teacher Jesus, a very nice Jesus. And then over 50 years or 25 years or 100 years, then the myth of this Jesus being God, that's when it took root. But that storyline doesn't fit history at all. This worldview change was early. It was overnight. It happened for James, the brother of Jesus, and it happened for thousands of other Jews. Let me show you one of those Jews. This is Paul writing to the church at Corinth in chapter 15. This is what he says in verse 3. Look at this with me. Verse 3 says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I received. Now, what's happening here is very important. This letter is probably written about uh, AD 54, 55. So 25 years after the death of Jesus Christ. And Paul is saying right here, I'm receiving a tradition and I'm giving it to you. What I have delivered to you, I first Received. He used the same language in chapter 11 when he's speaking about the Lord's Supper. So this is a formula for Paul. He's introducing a tradition. He said, somebody told me this. Now I'm telling this to you. And then what he gives us is kind of this, this, this creed, if you will, this, this tradition, a very rhythmic sentence you can memorize. Look at what he says. And this is the confession of the first century church. Paul says, I received this. What did you receive, Paul? Verse 3, we'll pick up from the very beginning. 
For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he was buried and that was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. You see almost the rhythmic way that's put together? In accordance with the Scriptures. In accordance with the Scriptures. Most New Testament scholars say that this is a creed, it's a formula, it's a tradition handed to Paul. Now, we're going to see part of that tradition is going to continue, and it's going to include James, the brother of Jesus. But, but pause for a moment. And this is what I want to do. I want to nerd out a little bit, <laughs> just for a moment, because I think this is so interesting. We have Paul writing this 25 years after the death of Jesus Christ. So 25 years, you could say, well, maybe some of the story got changed in 25 years. But remember what Paul said. Paul said, I received this. So we got to go back a little bit from when he wrote this. We got to go back in that 25-year span. Well, what do we know of the life of Paul? We actually know a lot about the life of Paul. When could he receive such a tradition? There's two events I think we can see. You see, Paul, or Saul then, was converted, became a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ in Acts chapter 9. This was three years after the death of Jesus Christ. Three years after. He starts following Jesus Christ, and then he's hanging out with all these Christians in Damascus. Right there is an opportunity. Paul is around a group of believers. They could have handed him this tradition, this creed. Here you go. Here's what we believe. Here's what you believe. There's another opportunity three years after that, so six years after the death of Jesus Christ. 19 years before this letter was written, he's hanging out with another guy. In the book of Galatians, we know that Paul was hanging out with a guy named Peter, the primary disciple, the one who's given the most attention in the scriptures. And it says that they they hung out for over two weeks, for 15 days. What do you think Peter and Paul are talking about for 15 days? I think that is a primary answer to the question of when did Paul receive this tradition. So what does that mean? That means this tradition that Jesus died and rose again, these claims that were radical to the Jewish mind, they weren't invented later. They could have been three years or six years from the crucifixion event. That's when Paul received the tradition, which means they're even earlier than that. So we're talking about a belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, maybe within a year of his death event or months, they came up with this creed. Again, overnight, people change their worldview. Something they never anticipated and never expected and never saw in the Old Testament until after Jesus did it did they look back and then see it in the pages of the Old Testament. How do you explain that? Again, Paul's tradition is going to go on. Look what he says. Look at what else is included in the tradition that he received. Verse 4 is where we'll start. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And then he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Look, look at this phrase, most of whom are still alive. Why would he say that? This is what he's saying. Hey, these guys are still alive, very much alive. If you don't believe me, go ask them. Paul is saying there are eyewitnesses, eyewitnesses to this event that are still walking around. Go ask them. And in fact, the next line he's going to say, why don't you go ask his brother? If you don't believe me, Paul, go ask James. Go ask Jesus' brother. 
Look at the next name on his list, verse 7. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. Now, when you read that, you may say, wait a second. What if this is a different James? (laughs) Right? It doesn't say James, the brother of Jesus. Now, that's true. It does not. But there's only three other Jameses in the scriptures. There's James, the brother of Jesus. There's James, the son of Alphaeus, and there's James, the son of Zebedee. And those two guys, James, the son of Alphaeus, and James, the son of Zebedee, those were disciples. So they would be included in the group Paul already listed. When he said he appeared then to the 12 in verse 5. So that leaves only one more James that's mentioned in the New Testament. And notice how he only uses his first name. Why would he do that? Why would he only use the first name of James and not something else? It's because he believed that this James was so well known. Well, who fits that criteria? Well, how about the leader of the Jerusalem church? How about the man who settled the debate in Acts chapter 15? How about the man who who took over for Peter's leadership while he left Jerusalem? This, this, This dominant figure in Christianity. No wonder he only uses his first name. Everybody knows who he is. It's this James. And it makes sense because we know from Acts chapter 1, James saw the resurrected Jesus Christ. So what changed James's mind? How could he believe that his brother was God? It's because he saw him come back to life. How did thousands of Jews change their worldview overnight? It's because Easter actually happened. The resurrection actually happened. Now, again, let's make this personal. I'm going to make it really personal. What would it take for me to believe that my sister, Chris, a great sister, what would it take for me to believe that she was God? Well, it would take a lot. (laughs) And I think if she's fair and saying the same thing about me, she would say, Paul, it would take a lot. No matter how good, how great your sibling is, it would take a lot, a lot to make you believe that they were God. Now, if my sister were to do this, if she was to tell me that she was going to die and and tell me before it happened how she would die and then tell me that she would rise after she died and then told me the day in which she would rise again. And then if she died in the way that she said she was going to die, and then if she rose on the day that she said she was going to rise. Okay, now I think I would start to listen. Now I think I would believe this is what happened for James. This is what changed his life. It's so hard to explain the rise of Christianity in the first century world. And one of the reasons is, one, nobody saw it coming. Nobody anticipated it. Nobody thought that Messiah would be God. Nobody thought he would suffer and die, and nobody thought he would die and rise. Those categories were completely foreign to them. But then when they believed it, it really profited them nothing but persecution. The first century church was under the threat of persecution for over 300 years. Imminent persecution for 300 years. So they needed one event to reframe their entire worldview 
to such an extent that it would give them a passion that they'd be willing to die for it. See, oftentimes what we do as 21st century readers, we read the New Testament almost with this kind of chronological snobbery. (laughs) We look at those first century kind of uh, uh, Palestinians and we say to ourselves, well, in first century Palestine, they didn't have uh, technology and, and medical advancements, so they were very gullible. Now, it's true, they don't have what we have. They don't have Teslas and they don't have different things, right? They don't have iPads and those different things and they're not, they're not a, 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 have an understanding of our medical technology, but they know dead people don't come back to life. I mean, we've known that for a long time. We've known that since the first person died and then the second and then the third. This has been known in the history of mankind. Dead people don't come back to life. You don't need an iPad, a Tesla, or modern medical technology to know that when a heart stops beating, when the lungs stop filling, when the brain stops working, it doesn't happen to reboot itself. Resurrection is just as inconceivable in the first century world as it would be in the 21st century world. It was a shocking and radical statement, but somehow it happened overnight. Not with legend, not later, but immediately, overnight, they believed it. Wow. Wow. Doubters become believers when the dead become alive. Now, what do we do with that? Here's my challenge to you this Easter. My challenge to you this Easter is to be like James. Wherever you are on kind of that continuum, take the next step. I said that James was a doubter to a believer, to a leader, to a martyr. So maybe you already find yourself in that belief category. That you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You would call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ. Here's what I'd ask you to do. And I'm going to ask you to do something very specific. And what I'm going to ask you to do, it may make you feel really uncomfortable. Honestly, it it may be a a step that kind of stretches you a little bit. It it may be embarrassing. It, It may be awkward. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to take this challenge. And Valley Bible Church, I believe you're up for the challenge. I want you just to imagine for a moment if James, the brother of Jesus, had a device like this. Had a phone, a cell phone, an iPhone. Imagine what he could do with this. I mean, mean, think for a moment. James and the early followers of Jesus revolutionized the first century world. They started a movement 2,000 years ago that has been changing lives ever since then. They started a wildfire. Under persecution, people started to believe this. What could James do with something like this? A device like this. A device that allows you just with a picture or a video or a sentence or a tweet or a TikTok video, or a Snapchat, or, or a post on Facebook, or an Instagram tag, or a Twitter uh, handle, something like that, allows you to speak to thousands and even millions. What would James do with that type of technology? How could the world have been transformed in a moment quicker than what it was? I want to ask you to take a big, 
big step for me. Well, let me rephrase that. I want you to take a big step for the world. For the world. People are so hungry right now, searching for answers, searching for hope, hungry for peace. You and I both know, you've sat in the living rooms as people are scrolling through news feeds, bad story after bad story, bad news after bad news after bad news after bad news. I want to challenge you to change the story to enter into the story, to flood the news feed. Here's what I want you to do. And I want you to do it today, not tomorrow, not the next day. If we put it off, we won't do it. I want you to do it today. I want you to do it on Easter. Valley Bible Church, we don't have the cure to this virus, but we have the cure to death. We have the resurrection hope of Jesus Christ. So what I want you to do is this. I want you to find that camera mode, and I want you to flip it so you can see yourself. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to shoot a video, and I want you to speak into that video a very simple answer to a very simple question, and that's this. What does the resurrection mean to you? What does the resurrection mean to you? I want you to shoot that video, and I want you to send it out on your social media. Now, you may say, well, Paul, I'm not a social media person. I get it, but I bet you know somebody who is. So maybe it's a call to the grandkids or a call to your son. Or maybe your son or daughter, they have social media. And you grab them and you say, you shoot the video, post it on your social media. I know you can get creative for the cause of Jesus Christ. So here's what I want you to do. I want want to show you how easy it is. I'm going to shoot my video right now. This is what I'm going to post right now live. I'm going to show you how easy it is to share the hope of the resurrection of Jesus Christ on Easter. So I'm going to stare into my camera right now, and this is what I'm going to post online, my answer to the question, what does the resurrection mean for me? Hey guys, thanks for checking this video out. I just want to tell you right now, what does the resurrection mean for me? In one simple word, the resurrection means hope. It means hope. I know just a couple of years ago, my grandmother passed away, and it, it, it hit me in a big way. In a big way. See, see, her husband, my grandfather, passed away right after I got married. And, and her son, my grandmother's son, my, my father, passed away when I was really young. And so when she passed away, it was like the grief of all three of those deaths just really hit me. And so a couple of years ago, I got really sad for several weeks. I got, I got sad for a couple months, if I'm honest. And it really hurt, and I, and I was... I was, I was on an exploration and, and on a journey to find hope. And, I, and I've always been a follower of Jesus Christ, or at least have been for a long time. But that sent me on a journey to really dive in to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, to dive into the evidence, to dive into the history, to dive into these things. And I found a new and deep hope that Jesus Christ really did die and rise again. And that not only did he do that for himself, he promised to do it for me. He promised to do it for you. What does the resurrection mean to me? It means hope. It means that my sins can be forgiven. And that when I die, one day I will rise again and I will live with God forever. It means hope. And if you're looking for hope, I want you to know, if you don't believe what I believe, I'm always going to love you. You're always going to be my friend. You're always going to be my family. 
But if you're searching for hope right now, if you're looking for hope right now, friend, please call me. If you got my number, call me. If you got my number, text me. Uh, You can message me. You could comment, whatever you want to do. Please, I would love to talk to you about the hope that I have in Jesus Christ. Thanks for watching this, guys. So easy, so simple. But just imagine for a moment. Imagine hundreds of these. Hundreds of these posted on Easter, today. Not tomorrow, but today. Imagine your friends, your family members scrolling through and seeing hope, 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 hope. Imagine what that would do. What would that do for your friend? What would that do for your family member? What would that do for your coworkers if they just saw your message of hope, your church's message for hope? How could that change their lives? What would that look like? Imagine what that day, today, imagine what today could look like. I can't describe to you what it would look like, but I'll tell you this, it'll make God smile. And it could change somebody's life. Now maybe you're here and and you need to take that first step. That first step that James took. From doubter to believer. Maybe church hasn't been your thing, but you're exploring it now or you're thinking about it now or you're asking questions and you happen to watch this, again, I want to thank you for that. And maybe in your mind right now, you're thinking to yourself, man, I've really been thinking about what happens after. I've been really thinking about God and I've really been thinking about this this person, Jesus. And maybe as I've been going through these passages and working through all this stuff, you're starting to think to yourself, yeah, man, that is really hard to explain. How did this brother make this radical transformation? In fact, how did the first century world make this radical transformation? How have millions made this radical transformation? Maybe you're thinking to yourself, yeah, it's always sounded too good to be true, life after death. But you're thinking to yourself, it may sound too good to be true, but it's sure too good to not look into. That the promise is too big to not look into, and that's why you're here, and that's why you're watching this. And maybe you're ready you're ready to take that step, to cross that line, to say, I want to move from that, that, that position of doubt. I want to move to that position of saying, today I'm following Jesus Christ. This is the Easter I give my life over to the Lord. I'm not putting it off anymore. If that's you, friend, I'm going to pray a prayer in a moment. And part of that prayer is going to be specifically for you. And you can join me in that prayer. I hope today is the day you give your life over to Jesus Christ that you see that you have a need for forgiveness, we all have a need for forgiveness. That we've all sinned and we've all fallen short. We all have times of regret, moments of shame. And you see now that Jesus Christ has provided a way for you to have forgiveness. He's provided it in his death and his resurrection. And you see that that forgiveness isn't automatic, doesn't just drop in your lap. You've got to receive it. You've got to receive it by faith. And if you're ready to place your faith in Christ today, please, please join me in that prayer. And take that first step towards Jesus today. Let's all pray together. Father, we love you and we thank you for who you are to us in Jesus Christ. Father, we love you and we thank you for the hope that you've given us in Jesus Christ. Father, I am so excited right now because I'm envisioning hundreds. Father, if I'm honest, I'm envisioning thousands of stories recorded right now. And Father, I know it's scary. I know it's scary to, to speak into a phone, to record a video, and then to post it. I know it is. I get that. I understand that. 
Father, I pray for everybody who's listening to this and is a follower of Jesus Christ. I pray, Father, give them the courage. Give them the courage that you gave Jesus' brother James, who was skeptical at the beginning, but became a believer and then became a leader. Father, make us leaders. If there ever was a time to share the hope of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That time is now. Father, help us seize the moment. Help us rise to the occasion. Help us take on the challenge. Father, I am excited. I think at the end of today, I can see, Father, my news feed just popping with story after story after story after story. What does the resurrection mean to me? Father, thank you in advance Father, thank you for all those that take that challenge. And Father, I also want to pray for those who who need to take that first step. Father, I remember what it was like. I remember what it was like when I first felt I heard the message for the first time. And I know it wasn't the first time, but it was the first time it hit me. And Father, I think there are people right now who are listening, who are watching, and it's hitting them for the first time. The reality of death gravity of this disease that's taking over the world. And they're thinking about the frailty of life. They're thinking about you and they're thinking about eternity. They're thinking about what it means to follow you. They're thinking about your son, Jesus Christ. Father, and they're ready. They're ready to jump, to take the leap, to take the step, to draw the line in the sand and say, today is the day I'm following Jesus. If that's you and you're listening right now, I want, I want you to do something. And I know it may be awkward in the family room that you're in or, or, or wherever you're at watching this, but I want to invite you to do this. If your head's not bowed, I, I want you to do that. Bow your head and to close your eyes and to pray this prayer just in the silence of your own heart. In the silence of your own heart between you and God. I want to walk you through a prayer. A prayer that says, I want to start to follow Jesus today. You can pray some very simple words like this. You can pray, Father, I see that I need you. I see that I've sinned against you. I know that my crimes are many. Oh, but Father, I see now that your provision is great. That through the death and resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ, I can be forgiven. So, Father, I receive that forgiveness today. Take that step towards you. Jesus, I commit my life to following you. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.